Portland is known all over the world as a food city. Come on. People literally travel here from all over North America on vacation just to eat. The first time that I ever heard the word foodie was when I moved into Portland. In fact, I remember when I first moved here, what shocked me was not the naked bike ride or the guy with bagpipes breathing fire or even that like communism is still a thing that people are into. <laughs> that was not what rocked my faith. What shocked me coming from like a background where you know you were responsible with your money is, it's a weird, you never, it's a thing, don't worry about it, <laughs> is how much money people spend eating out all the time. That I just remember, I was like, Gerald, you spend how much money? Like you eat out more than twice a year, seriously? Like the Portland thing is you live in this tiny little, kind of cool, but kind of ghetto apartment with no furniture. And, and you drive like a 90s beat up sedan, preferably made by Subaru, maybe Toyota if you're like newer, and, or, or you ride a bicycle. And it's not because you don't have money, you have money. It's because you blow all of your money on eating out. And it's coffee and a pastry for breakfast and a food cart for lunch and then drinks with colleagues after work and you hit a new spot for dinner and then a little nightcap somewhere, maybe back at home if you're into it with scotch or whatever, you know? Welcome to Portland. And you know, we claim we have more restaurants per capita than any other city in the world. I have no idea if that is true or not. Either way, it would take you ear years just to eat your way through this city. But even outside of Portland, America is known all over the world as a place where three meals a day is the norm, plus coffee before that, red wine after, and snacks all day long. It's a place where we think that appetite and hunger are one and the same. So it comes as no surprise that nearly three quarters of Americans are obese or overweight. Nearly 30% of children now are obese or overweight. Plus you have issues of food waste. A family of four in America on average spends $1,500 a year on food that goes right into the trash can. You have issues of food injustice, where foods that are unhealthy for the body and bad for the environment are subsidized by our government, creating an economy where the poor do not have access to healthy food, on and on. So, on one hand, we live in a culture of food excess. But then, at the same time, this is really weird, we also live in a culture of the worship of the body, and in particular, of the worship of sexuality. Like, just think about the mixed messages, the emotional experience that is the grocery store, the line to the grocery store, right? Let's so imagine you're at Whole Foods, or like you're mortal like the rest of us, and you shop at Trader Joe's, or whatever. You're like, wait, shop? I just eat out all the time, okay? Imagine, hypothetical scenario, you're in line at the grocery store and there's a magazine rack on your left and your right. And normally, like, on your left is Chris Hemsworth with his shirt off and, like, apparently nine-pack abs are a thing now. <laughs> and he's like, is that CGI? Or I think that is real. And then normally on your right is, like, a decadent picture of strawberry cheesecake. Now, just think about the mixed messages there for a minute. Last time I checked, looking like Thor and eating cheesecake were mutually exclusive. <laughs> I like a lot, at least for my genetics and way of life. So it comes as no surprise that on a serious note, more and more people are suffering from eating disorders, like anorexia and bulimia, and so many people, so many young people, especially so many young women, are living with issues of body image and self-worth, and deeper than that, shame and guilt and a father wound or a mother wound. I mean, how many of us, and, and the deep sense of comparison and competition in our society 
How many of us look like the panoply of images you see every single day on a magazine rack or in an Instagram feed? That woman or that man in that photo, first off, is 0.001% of the population. Secondly, is one cultural definition of beauty that the odds are does not celebrate the full range of body types and metabolisms and ages and ethnicities. And that is not actually what that man or woman even looks like in real life. That has been through filter after filter after filter of makeup and professional photography and lighting and this thing called Adobe Photoshop, you know about it, and then Visco on top of all of that, <laughs> right? That's, they don't even look like that in real life, right? And so we have, we have this fascinating moment where we feel this tension in our body and pass that into our soul. And what both sides, from food excess on one side and body idolatry and with it, its twin body insecurity on the other, what both sides have in common is more than just an unhealthy relationship to food. It's that the body has become our master. It has a power and authority over our emotional equilibrium and our spiritual status. The reality is just, if we're honest, that food and our body and our desire for food has way more power over us than most of us want to admit. And underneath that desire, either for food and the pleasure that comes from that or for body image or whatever, underneath that desire is an even deeper desire that psychologists call the pleasure principle, which is the driving motivation of the immature who only want to do what feels good in the moment. Once reserved for children and middle schoolers, this is becoming the new normal in our society. Hence the explosion of debt at a national level and an individual level. Hence divorce, hence the rise of addictions of all kinds. But as we all know, many things that are pleasurable in the short term wreak damage in the long term. And on the flip side, many things that are, quite honestly, not very fun in the short term, yield dividends for years and decades to come. As long as we run our life on the pleasure principle, we will never mature into the man or the woman that has the capacity to enjoy life as God intended it. In reality, we are not running our lives at all. We are being run by what the writers of the New Testament call our flesh, and I will define that for you in just a bit. And our city in particular, and our nation as a whole, is literally set up to indulge our flesh, to feed it literally and metaphorically, to entice it, to tempt it, to market to it, to promote to it, to proselytize to it, to draw you in and make a little bit of money off of your lack of self-control over your body, much less over our desires. Welcome to 2018 in Portland, Oregon. You thought it was just a food cart. No, it was Satan, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> is there a practice from the way of Jesus to break free from this unhealthy relationship that so many of us have with our body and all of its desires? And underneath it, the pleasure principle that is running our life and locking so many of us in unhealthy patterns of immaturity. Yes, there is. There are a number. I would argue the top of the list is the practice 
of fasting. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter two and give me a few minutes to lay out a biblical theology of fasting. Genesis chapter two, if you have a Bible or an app on your phone, um, I really encourage you to take a Bible along as in like a codex, not an app on your phone, along with you to church to focus your mind on the moment. Let's read a story, Genesis chapter two, take a look at verse four. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then, seven, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being." There's a play on words in the original language that we miss in the English translation. In Hebrew, the phrase is Adam, which here is translated a man. It can also be translated human, uh, which is where we get the proper name Adam, but in Hebrew, it's not a proper name. It means human, was made from the Adama in Hebrew. Adam is made from the Adama, meaning human has a symbiotic relationship with the earth. He, in the story, is literally made from the dust. Yet, at the same time we read that God breathed into his, breast, into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Breath right there is the word ruach in Hebrew. And it's the word for breath and also for spirit. So human is dust, but he's also spirit. He's physicality, but he's also spirituality. He's both and. Unlike the animals who have a body but no spirit, or the angels who have a spirit but no body, human beings are kind of a hybrid, an integrated being, body and spirit, material and immaterial. Now this has so much to say to our culture, to our secular culture, this says you are more than just your body, your mind is more than just your neural synapses firing at random. To our Christian culture, this says your body is a part of who you are, not as so many Christians believe, just a shell to carry, quote, the real you around until you go to heaven when you die or whatever. That is medieval heresy, it is not biblical theology. This right here is what the theologian Scott McKnight calls embodied spirituality, I love that. And you have to wrap your head around this idea that you, on one hand, don't have a body, you are a body, but at the same time, you are more than just a body, you are dust and spirit. You have to wrap your head around this idea that you are an integrated being, or fasting, and honestly, a number of the other spiritual disciplines as well, will never make sense to you. Fasting is what McKnight calls body talk. It's a way of praying, not with your mind or with your mouth, but with your stomach and with your body. And we do it because something has gone wrong in our body itself. Turn the page, chapter three, verse one. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, the woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but yeah, God did say you must not eat tr uh, from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. There's that one, you must not even touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die. Notice that's a full-on lie. The snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Like God has an agenda, you can't trust him. And you will be like God, you'll, you'll be better off knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and what? 
ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the story goes on, the story of what we call the fall or original sin. Now, I grew up in the church like a lot of you. I have heard this story a thousand times. I can't remember one time when anybody ever made a point of saying that original sin had to do with food, with the inability to not eat something that was in front of you. However you read Genesis, whether you read the story more literally as history or more literarily as theology or some kind of a go-between, I don't really care. However you read it, that has got to mean something. Now, the temptation was not to eat food. The temptation was to redefine good and evil, to trust your own instinct and the voice of the serpent in your ear rather than to trust God and his vision for human flourishing. That has always been the temptation, am I right? To redefine good and evil based around your own opinion, your own gut, your own instinct, and the voice in your ear, whatever, wherever that voice comes from. As Ignatius so wisely said, quote, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. So that's the temptation. But notice, what is the means of temptation? Food. To eat or not to eat. That has got to say something to the human condition. Also notice, there's an inversion in this story. If you're reading through Genesis, you know that human beings, male and female, were made to rule over the creation, and there are two categories in Genesis 1. There is the animal kingdom and all plant life. And instead, in the fall, in original sin, everything is inverted and human beings are ruled over by the creation, by a serpent from the animal kingdom, and by a fruit from the plant world. Do you see it? Now, the animal kingdom, the plant world, the creation now has power and authority over human beings. Something has now gone wrong in the body and in its desire, not only for food, but for pleasure. We read that word right in the story, pleasure. As Paul later writes in the New Testament, quote, who will save us from this body of death? It's a rhetorical question, what's the answer? Yeah, just take a guess, it's church, nine times out of 10. It's always Jesus, and even if it's not, nobody will get, you will never get in trouble for that, ever, I promise, right? Yeah, Jesus, turn over to Matthew chapter four into the New Testament now. I know we're flying here, stay with me. Matthew chapter four. This is one of the first stories that we read about Jesus of Nazareth, or I mean, you could argue it is the first story that we read about Jesus of Nazareth. Chapter four, this is right after his baptism, we read this, verse one. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Oh wow, does that sound familiar? We just read a story about that. After what? Fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, you would think. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to what? Become bread. So it's another temptation that has to do with what? Food, and it's not really about food, nothing wrong with bread, right? Jesus is not like anti-gluten or something, all right? <laughs> but this is about something else, but still, does this sound familiar? Jesus answered, it is written, quote, man, this is a quote from Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, in the original Hebrew, the word there is Adam, shall not live on bread alone, 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the story goes on. Now, there's a lot here I don't have time to get into. Short version, if you're feeling deja vu right now, that's good. That means you're reading the Bible well. You're supposed to. That's what the writer Matthew has in mind. This is the way that Matthew writes the story and the way that Jesus is living this out. This is, there's no doubt, all theologians point this out. This is Jesus replaying the Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the garden story all over again. Here's Jesus now, the Adam, the human being, face to face with the tempter. Here's the temptation. It's kind of about food, but it's not really about food. It's about a lot more than that. But unlike Adam and Eve who failed, here Jesus succeeded. Unlike you and me who failed, here Jesus succeeded. Unlike the other billions of people around the planet and all down through human history who failed, Jesus succeeded. Where we were defeated, Jesus was victorious. And in doing so, he opened up a kingdom in the language of Jesus, a rule and a reign of freedom for anybody that wants in on it. Paul later theologizes this story, and he writes, quote, in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. Beautiful. Now, for our purposes tonight, I just want you to notice one thing. How did Jesus succeed where Adam and Eve and so many others had failed before? Is there a practice in there? There's actually two or three. You see silence and solitude, you see prayer, and you see what? Fasting, after fasting for 40 days, then was Jesus weak? No, he was stronger than ever before. After fasting, he was hungry, but he was at the height of his powers. And then and only then did he have the power and the authority and the control over his own body to take the tempter on toe to toe and come out the other side the victor. How did Jesus start off his kingdom work in the world with fasting? It comes as no surprise that fasting later became a regular part of Jesus' life. And we just read a a subtle hint, a nod there. It's not even with a lot of fanfare. There's a great story I don't have time to read where Jesus is at a well with a woman and everybody's hungry and he's tired and the disciples go out to get lunch and come back and Jesus has this cryptic line about how my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And it sounds like Jesus is being clever And it's not, like that's honestly, he was feeding off, drawing energy off, he was fasting. Life from God, it became a regular part of his life and the life of his apprentices. Turn over to Matthew chapter six, just a page or two to the right. We read this a few months ago, Uh, Bethany did a great teaching on this. Let me just reread it to you, Matthew chapter six, we're in the Sermon on the Mount now, verse 16. When you fast, Jesus here, when you fast, Don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received the reward in full. All right, that's what you want, you got it. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, you know, put like product in your hair for once, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret, guess what? He will reward you. Now again, so much here, don't need to get into. For our purposes tonight, I just want you to notice two things about this teaching of Jesus on fasting. One, Jesus assumes that all of his apprentices will fast. When you fast, end quote. Not if you fast. Secondly, Jesus assumes that we will mess it up. 
That makes me feel a lot better. Am I alone in that? He assumes that you'll do it for all sorts of wonky reasons and you'll do it to show off and it won't really work and it won't really get you the reward that you're after and like the thought, like he just assumes all of his disciples will fast and most of his disciples will mess it up. I for one feel a lot better out of that. But let's just take a minute, let's just pause and we'll read more Jesus stuff next week. Let's just talk a little bit about this practice of fasting. Jesus assumes that all of his disciples will fast on a semi-regular basis. To, to begin, let's just call out the elephant in the room. Most of us don't do that. The data is in. We take an annual survey at Bridgetown Church. Uh, here are the results hot off the press a month or two ago. Uh, we asked the question, how frequently do you fast? 45% of our church said never. Never done it before. So that's just about upwards of half. 30% rarely. So just think about the math on that. 75% of the people in our church, for them, Fasting is not a part of their kind of regular life. You have 12% a few times a year, 5% once a year. We're down to 2% once we get to once a week. Now, please don't misread me here. I'm not blasting anybody in the room, much less 98% of you, all right? <laughs> Whoever the 2% of you are, we have like a, you know, your lucky dinner or something for you um, this week. No, like I'm not blasting anybody. My point is, if you're here and you're like, oh man, I don't really fast at all, or maybe like that one time, like forever ago was seven, or what was it called again? I don't, it was more like two for me, but whatever. Don't feel bad at all. You are not alone. 98% of the people to your right and to your left, but it hasn't always been this way. Let me give you a brief history of fasting in two or three minutes. In Jesus' first century world, most Jews and all Pharisees fasted twice a week, every Monday and every Thursday. Fasting was one of the core practices of that day and age. In fact, the one time that Jesus teaches on the spiritual disciplines, uh, like straight up, is right here in Matthew 6, and he calls out three by name. You remember? Prayer, fasting, and giving to the poor. Because in his day and age, in rabbinic teaching, those were the three most important of all the practices of the spiritual disciplines. Isn't that a little weird? If somebody asked you, what are the three most important spiritual disciplines, what would you say? Bible reading, church, I don't know, tithing or something. The odds are you would not say prayer, fasting, and giving to the poor. The odds are that fasting, for most of us, if we're honest, would not make it into the top three most important of all. And the early church continued this practice of biweekly fasting, but they changed it from Monday and Thursday to Wednesday and Friday. The Didache, which is the earliest writing we have from the early church outside of the New Testament, as, we, as far as we can tell, it's as old as a number of writings in the New Testament. It uh, goes back to the first century. We read this, quote, but do not let your fasts coincide with those of the hypocrites or the Pharisees. They fast on Mondays and Thursdays, so you must fast on Wednesday and Friday. Grumpy Christians are nothing new. Apparently, they've been around for a very long time. So the early church, for a very long time, uh, fasted every Wednesday and every Friday. The only two days they refused to fast were Saturdays and Sundays. Saturdays because it was the Sabbath and it was a day to look back to creation. And Sunday because it was the Lord's Day, a day to look forward to new creation. And those were days not for fasting, but for feasting, to come together, light up the band, throw a party, set the table, be together. But they took this like seriously, no fasting on the weekend, but every Wednesday and Friday. Here's a quote from a writing in th um, 380 AD on church leadership. Quote, if any one of the clergy be found to fast on the Lord's day or on the Sabbath day, excepting one only, let him be deprived. 
sounds ominous, I don't even know what that is, but it sounds scary. But if he be one of the laity, let him just be suspended. You gotta love, this is like right out of church history. Now the one only day that he is referring to is the one exception to fasting on the Sabbath, and that's Holy Saturday. If you know the church calendar at all, that is the Sabbath after Lent and the night before Easter. On that day and that day alone, the entire church, or that Sabbath alone, the entire church would all fast together across the ancient world. Speaking of Lent, if you, you know about that, if you come from a Roman Catholic background or Eastern Orthodox or a church that was involved in the church calendar, Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter. It's about to start. And it was a thing, not right away, but within a few hundred years of the church. And originally, a lot of people don't know this, originally Lent was 40 days of fasting, but you would eat after the sun went down, a very simple meal, no meat and no alcohol, for 40 days. It's very similar to the Muslim um, feast, or not feast, I'm sorry, practice of Ramadan, which as far as we can tell was based on the Christian, ancient Christian practice of fasting for Lent. Now, most church traditions, West and East, have changed Lent to giving up something for 40 days. You give up TV or social media or alcohol or whatever you feel like the Spirit is leading you to, and that's great, more on that in a minute. But early on, it was full-on fasting. My point for you is that early in the history of the church, there were both regular fasts every Wednesday and Friday and periodic fasts, Lent, Holy Saturday, before baptism you had to fast, before the Lord's Supper. And get this, this lasted for a very long time all the way up to at least around the time of John Wesley. If you know your church history at all, John Wesley was a Brit who came over the pond to America in the 18th century, was one of the most influential church leaders in the Western world. His impact on America is still being felt to this day. And um, for the most part, he was an amazing man. And he had a lot to say about fasting, but I started laughing when I read this quote. This is from the middle of the 1700s. I fear there are now thousands of Methodists, so-called, a little passive-aggressive right there, come on, both in England and in Ireland, who, following the same bad example, have entirely left off fasting, who are so far from fasting twice a week, they do not fast twice in the month. You know who you are, <laughs> Christians so-called. He goes on, the man who never fasts is no more in the way to heaven than the man who never prays. Sisters, you're off the hook, right? <laughs> It's a patriarchal society, it's a long time ago, all right? Now, please listen carefully. I'm not saying that I agree with Wesley. He was single and a bit grumpy at times, all right? <laughs> all I'm saying, he's also one of the greatest leaders in the history of the church. All that I'm saying is that up until quite recently in church history, fasting was thought of as a core practice for the way. Basically, if you were at all serious about apprenticeship to Jesus, then you fasted on a regular basis. Now today, let's just be honest, that sounds crazy. It's unthinkable. It's weird. Tyler posted something on our church, you know, Instagram feed about the upcoming practice a few days ago, and I saw this comment at the bottom that full-on said, is this a cult because this is cultish? Um, the answer is yes, we are a cult. We're really happy you're here. Um, <laughs> Just please pass forward your debit card and the Kool-Aids at the back, all right? <laughs> um, so it's that weird to people. It sounds crazy because it is so far out of step with our culture. 
Now, there are all sorts of reasons for this. It has to do with the abuse of the practice in the Middle Ages. If you know your church history, there's this goofy, like, really unhealthy theology. The body was evil and all pleasure from food to sex to whatever was evil. It has to do with the Protestant-Catholic divide and the Reformation a few hundred years ago. It's like kind of a divorce in the church and it's like the Protestants got some of the spiritual disciplines, like we got Bible reading and sermons and stuff and the Catholics got, you know, like spiritual direction and fasting and contemplative prayer. They got some of the cool ones. It's not fair. Um, So it has a little bit to do with that, but honestly, and I might be wrong here, But if I'm reading the history right, more than anything, it has to do with the hedonism of our day and age. And our do what feels good kind of instant gratification culture, the idea of going without food sounds cultish, if not crazy, much less in vogue. Meaning what? Meaning basically this is a lost practice in the modern Western church. So, two very simple questions before we call it a night. What is fasting and why do we do it? All right, first off, what is fasting exactly? And I know this is not rocket science, but just stick with me because there's a lot of misinformation out there. First, let's start with what it's not. Fasting is not abstaining. I regularly hear, regularly hear, hear people say, I'm fasting from social media or I'm fasting from Xbox. Um, That's just called growing up, but that's another thing. (laughs) Or I'm fasting from, you know, red wine, or I'm fasting from shopping or whatever. That, and honestly, I don't mean to make light of it, that's great. There's a long-running practice in the church of abstaining from habits that do violence to your heart's love for Jesus, and I am all for it. But don't call it fasting. Call it, I'm not playing Xbox this week or I'm not buying new clothes for the next three months, or whatever, just call it that. It's abstaining, it's not the same thing as fasting. Secondly, it's not a restricted diet. So this is kind of fad, I don't know where it came from, but the last few years on this thing called the Daniel Fast, have you heard about that? It's based on Daniel 1 where you eat only meat and vegetables and drink only water for three weeks or whatever. Um, That's great, but that's not fasting. Go read Daniel chapter one. Daniel does eat only meat and vegetables and drink only water for three weeks, but never once is the word fasting used anywhere in that story. That's a restricted diet, and if you wanna lose a little weight, detoxify your system, and not get sucked into Babylon, it's great. (laughs) Third, it's not, seriously, it's a great thing. Just don't call it fasting. It's a restricted diet. Third, it's not dieting. It's not a trend, it's not a fad. So the latest health you know, fad, at least for men, is intermittent fasting, where you don't eat for 15 hours a day. I've been doing it for a while. I still have a tummy that is, doesn't have six things on it, but whatever, <laughs> um, it's, that's fine. But that's, that's not the practice of fasting. Does that make sense? Uh, we'll talk about why we fast in a minute, but when I think about Jesus 40 days in the wilderness, I don't think he was out there fasting because he's like, you know, I just need to get cut and I'm on stage all the time and I want to detoxify my system, clear up my skin a little bit, clear my mind and just really look good when I show up to, you know, change the course of human history. I, I don't know, but I doubt that was Jesus' motivation, right? So, what is fasting? Well, it's pretty straightforward. Fasting is not eating food or drinking water at times, although usually it's not that. In order, the meta reason, we'll talk about more reasons in a minute, but in order to feed on the Holy Spirit. John Piper defines it as whole body hungering for God. 
Yes, I just quoted John Piper. It's a new year, miracles happen. Won't happen again, I promise, all right? Scott McKnight, who I'm much more on the same page with, defines it as a person's whole body natural response to life's sacred moments. Willard writes that fasting is feasting, but not on food, on our Lord and on doing His will. Are you starting to get that? It's not eating, but it's more than not eating. Now, there's no biblical time limit for a fast. There's no, like, biblical length. Most fasts in the Bible and in church history are one day long. The twice-a-week fast was usually from sunup to sundown, so about 12 hours long. You'd wake up, skip breakfast and lunch, and then um, eat a late dinner after the sun went down. Or in Portland, an early dinner after the sun went down. You know, whatever. Some examples are shorter, where they, in particular a nursing mother or something, would eat at noon or 3 p.m. Others are longer. They would start the fast the night before and skip three meals, dinner, breakfast, and lunch, for a full 24 hours. But there are also three-day examples of the fast and seven-day and even 40-day fasts all through the Bible. Usually people would still drink water. Your body can only go for a little bit without water. It can go for quite a while without food. But there are stories where people would go without food or water. Fasting on that note can be done both individually and communally. Very important that you get your head around that. Again, a lot of misinformation here. Jesus here in Matthew 6 is not saying that fasting in public is wrong. Right, if by that logic, that's what Jesus is saying, then right before that, he said the same thing about prayer. That means that prayer in public is wrong, right? Nobody would argue that. Like, clearly that's not right. He's saying that fasting to show off is wrong. The Bible is full of examples of people fasting and praying in community, from Esther calling the entire nation to prayer, three days of prayer and fasting with no food or water in a national crisis, to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where all Israel would fast together for 24 hours every single year, to multiple stories in the book of Acts of the early church fasting and praying together. On that note, the Bible is just full of examples of fasting. Pretty much all the major characters in the Bible fast. Not all, but pretty much all of them. Interesting, the three 40-day fasts are Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Moses, who's the archetype of the law. Elijah, who's the archetype of the prophets. And Jesus, who's the archetype of the Gospels and the New Testament. From cover to cover, all the way through, you read about this practice of fasting. Now, question number two. Like, okay, it's there. Why? Why in the world would I do this? Well, this is where we really need to drill down because according to Jesus, fasting goes south really fast when we do it for the wrong reasons. To show off, to manipulate God, to lose weight, to whatever it is. And there's a danger here. Now, it's not enough danger to throw the baby out with the bathwater and not practice it but it's enough danger to keep you and me on our toes. So our teaching for the next three weeks will focus on the why, not on the what. You basically have the what. It's like pretty simple. You don't eat and you pray a lot. Um, but the why is where we'll put most of our time into. Why is this an idea whose time might just have come or really better said, come again, and why would you and I want to seriously consider working this practice into our apprenticeship to Jesus? Now, on that note, as I see it, there are basically three reasons that we fast, and these are kind of three overarching categories. Each one has subcategories, and, and feel free to, you know, push back on this, but basically myself, and I'm not alone here, a lot of others argue, three basic reasons. One is to starve the flesh and feed the spirit. We'll talk about that in a minute. Two is to pray, and three is to stand in solidarity with the poor. 
Tonight, we'll tackle reason number one, and then over the next two weeks, it's a pretty short teaching series and pretty short practice, we'll tackle the next two. Turn to Galatians 5. We'll end here for our night. Galatians 5. Just give me a few more minutes of your time. Galatians chapter 5 in the New Testament. This is one of my all-time favorite passages for sure in the New Testament, if not in all of the Bible. I think it's one of the most important passages. If you are into scripture memorization, this is a great passage to put to memory. And notice how Paul writes about the flesh and the spirit. Galatians chapter five, let's just read it. Start off in verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. I love that, you were called to be free, to freedom. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify, give into, or feed the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So, listen carefully, you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, well, then you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law at all. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now again, a lot here. Don't have time for short version. A running theme in Paul's writings, not just here in Galatians, in Romans, and all through the New Testament, is this idea of the flesh and the spirit. And at some point I wanna do more in-depth teaching on it because I think it matters a ton. In Greek, this word, the flesh, is sarx, and it can be translated your body, but what Paul means here is not your body, all right? It's not your body and your spirit. What he means by the flesh is, the best definition I can think of, is your disordered desires. So it has to do with our body, but it's not our body. It's our bodily desires that are out of whack. Our desires for food and drink and sleep and sex and self-preservation, none of which is bad, but that have run out of whack and have taken control of our mind and of our body and of our whole person and have bent it away from good as defined by Jesus and toward good as defined by the serpent or our own voice or whatever. It is our primal, animal-like desires for instant gratification. I want what I want, and I want it now, and don't let anybody get in my way. 
It is your inner Adam, your inner Eve, that part of you that is bent in rebellion against God, against all authority, whether it's the Bible or the church or a pastor or a teacher or a parent or a rule or regulation or a law or a verse in the Bible, whatever it is that has bent you, I don't tell me what to do. My life is my own and I'm, or we think, in control of it. And it's not just infected, the flesh has not just infected our body, it's infected our mind. Paul in Romans 8 has a lot to say, I don't have time for it now, but about the flesh and the mind. He writes that the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. So your mind has been infected as well to where you believe lies in your mind's eye, and so do I, about what is true and what is not true, about what is freedom and what is slavery, about what is the way to be human and what is not the way to be human. And if you believe lies long enough and then you start to live those lies, the terrifying thing is that those lies start to come true. So this, this is our flesh. It's not our body. Your body is not evil but your body is infected and there's a part of you that is your sarks, your flesh, your disordered desires. Now, that's just a part of you. And by the way, the good news is it's dying. Its days are numbered. It will not make it through the resurrection and out the other side. There's another part of you, an even deeper part of you, that Paul calls the spirit. This is this part of you that is in contact with the Spirit of God himself. And this is, in the language of church theology, and it's called regeneration. These are your deepest desires. One thing that's really helpful to think about is often your strongest desires are not your deepest desires. So in the moment, your strongest desire might be to lust or objectify or lie to save face or you know, hit somebody when you're angry or gossip or whatever, but that's not your deepest desire. Deeper than that, underneath that, you have a spirit that is in contact with the spirit of God that has been terraformed and transformed by the saving work of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and the filling of the Holy Spirit in the depth of your being, and your deepest desire now is to follow Jesus. But the problem is, this side of resurrection, this is temporary, but for now, we're this mixed bag of desires. We have a flesh, and it has its set of desires. We have a spirit, and its set of desires. And because we're this mixed bag of desires, for Paul, listen, listen, freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. Quote, you are not to do whatever you want, end quote. For Paul, that's not freedom, that is actually slavery. Paul, I think, and Jesus, who said a ton about freedom, would take serious issue with our culture's definition of freedom. Get your lies off my body, it's none of your business. We define freedom as the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. So we think in our hyper-individualistic society, as if our life is not tied to the life of the people to our right and to our left. For Paul, that's not freedom. That's slavery, but not to a Hitler or a Mussolini or a Stalin or a whatever. It's slavery to your own flesh, to your mind that's been infected and your body that is now off kilter. Freedom 
is the ability to live in the Spirit, to have your spirit transformed by the Spirit of Jesus, and to want what the Spirit wants, and then to have the power and the authority over your own mind and your own body through self-mastery, through access to the power of the Holy Spirit, to actually will what the Spirit wants in and through your life, and to know the right thing and want the right thing and do the right thing. That is freedom, that and nothing else. So the call for a follower of Jesus, in Jesus' language, is come, take up your cross, and follow me. In Paul's language, playing with that, it is to crucify, not to gratify, not to feed, not to indulge, but to crucify, to put to death, to starve, to write off your flesh, and instead to feed your spirit. Now, the question, of course, is how do we do this, right? This, um, Galatians 5, is a passage about the what, not about the how. So the end goal is to starve your flesh, not your body, but your flesh, and to feed your spirit. The question is how? Well, the answer, short answer, is through the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines, or the practices of Jesus, are how you crucify your flesh and how at the same time you feed, you draw energy from, you open up your mind, your body, your whole person. That's why we don't like to call them spiritual disciplines. Most of them are things you do with your body. Fasting is a great example. It is a bodily discipline. It is a practice where you open up your whole person to the power of the Holy Spirit to transform you from the inside out. And fasting in particular is a practice that is designed to starve your flesh and feed your spirit. And that is because the body and the flesh are tied up together. When you fast, you feed on the spirit instead of food. You draw energy from God himself. And with this new power, you start to bring your body and with it your flesh back under your control. Failure to do this, failure to discipline your body and with it your flesh will have a ripple effect across your whole person. So followers of Jesus have long pointed out, long before I was around, that when you overeat, all sorts of other temptations ramp up, in particular sexual temptation. Thomas Akempis, that towering intellectual of millennia ago, one of the great figures of Western civilization, said of fasting, quote, restrain from gluttony, and thou shalt the more easily restrain from all the inclinations of the flesh. Augustine, in the fourth century, when he was asked, why would you fast, his answer was, quote, because it is sometimes necessary to check the delight of the flesh in respect to illicit pleasures, I'm sorry, to licit pleasures, like food, things that aren't bad, in order to keep it from yielding to illicit joys. Now, honestly, this practice is a bit intimidating for me, and I'm not like master level every Wednesday and Friday I fast, and I'm just like, oh like me and Jesus, all right? <laughs> but I have been practicing this for a number of years now on a regular basis, and I still feel like a novice, and I'm still learning as I go, and honestly, I'm just starting to enjoy it. But here's what I have started to notice. I have found the exact same thing to be true. When I fast, my desires change. Again, I'm this mixed bag of desires. Some desires go down and others go up. I find that my flesh desires for lust, or greed, or ego, or whatever it is, go down. It's like that muscle is weakened. And my spirit desires to be holy, to be like the Holy Spirit, are strengthened and go up. I find myself, as the day or whatever time period goes on, wanting to sin less and less and less, kind of grossed out by it and turned off by it, what I before was drawn to, 
and I find myself wanting to pray, wanting to be holy, wanting to be like Jesus, wanting to consecrate my entire person before God all through the practice of fasting. I've come to believe that one of the best practices for breaking the power of sin over your life, in particular sexual sin or any kind of bodily appetite, is that of fasting. Now, it's not one-stop shopping. You also need community and therapy and healing, all of that. But there is a practice. Now, again, is the power in the practice? No. The power is, again, in Jesus. Jesus is always the answer, right? The practice is just an access. It's just a way to access. It's just a practice. There are lots of non-Christians that fast. It's a huge Hindu thing, Buddhist thing. All the Greek philosophers were into fasting. Like, it's a thing right? It's just a practice by which you access a power beyond yourself, that of the Holy Spirit, and transform your heart from the inside out. Now, before we wrap up, I just need to forewarn you, and this goes without saying, but just to clarify, this is not an easy practice, right? Does that make sense? Because you are essentially picking a fight with, not with your body, it's not your enemy, it's your ally, but with your flesh, and lots of stuff will come to the surface of your heart. Richard Foster writes this, fasting reveals the things that control us. Dang it. (laughs) If pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they are within us, they will surface during fasting, and usually by about 11 a.m., you're there, and I'm like, this is not working. I just feel kind of hangry, you know, and whatever. And actually, no, that's it doing its job, and all sorts of stuff, ugly stuff is coming to the surface. Paul writes in Philippians about those whose, quote, God is their belly. I read that and think it's about somebody else until I fast. And then I realize, oh, I think that's about me, actually. I realize just how much power and authority my flesh still has over me and how far I still am from the freedom that Jesus died to give me. Willard writes this. Can't do this without Willard. We gotta. This discipline teaches us a lot about ourselves very quickly. It will certainly prove humiliating to us as it reveals to us how much our peace depends upon the pleasures of eating. It may also bring to mind how we are using food pleasure to assuage the discomforts caused in our bodies by faithless and unwise living and attitudes. Holy cow, what does that say over our city? Lack of self-worth, meaningless work, purposeless existence, or a lack of rest or exercise. If nothing else, though, it will certainly demonstrate how powerful and clever our body is in getting its own way against our strongest resolves. That is why, and please listen carefully, fasting is about more than growing your willpower muscle. It is that. It is a way to grow in self-mastery and that combination of self-control and self-discipline. Self-control is the ability to say no to something. Self-discipline is the ability to say yes to something. Self-control is the ability to not do something you want to do but is bad for you in the long term. Whereas self-discipline is the ability to do something you don't want to do but is good for you in the long term. Together they make for self-mastery. And fasting is an aid to kind of work out and exercise that willpower muscle. That's great. But it's just the tip of the iceberg. And in the end, your willpower always gets creamed by your flesh. Willpower versus porn will not win. 
Willpower versus addiction will not win. Willpower versus inner father wound will not win. And that's why fasting is about more than just your willpower. It's about feeding on the Holy Spirit and drawing your energy not from your willpower but from the Holy Spirit's power, access to a power beyond you out of relational connection to God or what Jesus called abiding. That's it. So, who's ready to fast? You up for this? Yeah, like you've never done it before, but we're really happy that you're into it. Now, really fast, before we wrap up, our practice for the week um, ahead is all on practicingtheway.org slash fasting. The idea is very simple. The idea is just to take one day a week for the next three or four weeks and fast, whether a day is 24 hours or 12 hours or whatever you feel up for. And the idea is that you start, listen carefully, that you start the night that you meet with your community, which for most of us is Tuesday nights, and then you fast um, through your sleep to, and then you'd pick a time to end, breakfast or lunch, or if you want to go all the way to dinner the following day, 24 hours, whatever you want. And you make the call, just start where you're at. Please don't bite off more than you can chew, no pun intended. Um, also with that, because most communities eat a meal um, on Tuesday nights, we are doing morning worship and prayer on Wednesday mornings, for the, as Colin said, for the next three Wednesday mornings at our Bridgetown office down the street. So, if, so the idea is kind of Tuesday night, you're with your community, hopefully you're in one. If not, let us help pastor you into one. And you get together, but instead of eating together, you circle up in the living room, you talk about your experience and you pray. And then you go to sleep and you wake up the next morning. And if you want, um, come out to the office, worship, pray, start your day that way, and then break your fast whenever you feel you're ready. And listen, one last note. If you feel like you're not ready to fast yet due to issues of body image or an eating disorder or legalism or some you're in need of healing or whatever, listen, like no pressure. This is such a safe place. All we ask is that you don't, um, you know, do anything to rain on the parade of the people to your right and to your left who are ready for that. And I think maybe for you, just a kind suggestion, maybe the practice for you over the next month is for you to get with a therapist or a pastor or a coach or somebody that you love and trust and start to ask the question in a safe place of why can't I do this? And where do I need healing in my relationship with food or my own body or my relationship with spiritual disciplines or whatever it is? Where do I need healing um, in order to let my limbic system kind of calm down and let the Spirit of God take control of my mind and my body? Maybe that's the next step for you. Just the point is, take the next step. If it's small, wherever you're at, just take the next step. Now to end, I just wanna say this one last time. Fasting is about freedom. It's the exact opposite of legalism. It's about freedom from your flesh and all of your disordered desires that enslave your mind and your body. And here's great news for you as we end. Fasting is never commanded anywhere in the New Testament. You don't have to do this. You're here, you're not into it, you think it's cultish. That's fine, that's up to you, that's great. You don't need to do this, you don't have to do this. Jesus is not mad at you. You're not earning more love or whatever if you fast this coming week. You don't, it's never commanded anywhere in the New Testament. This is all invitational. You're invited to take on the life example of Jesus of Nazareth who thought that he needed to fast in order to live well this side of resurrection. You're invited, if you want more freedom and less slavery, more spirit, less flesh, more holiness, less unholiness, then you are invited to follow Jesus into this practice 
and to bring your whole person, including your body, into the life-giving, healing freedom of the rule and the reign of God. Let's stand together and pray.